0: You are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schablat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Brandt Cooper, New York Times bestselling author and CEO and founder of Moves the Needle, a company bringing entrepreneurial thinking to companies like Chase, Intuit, 7-Eleven, and Nike. Uh, together with Steve Blank and Eric Ries, he's been really amongst the pioneers of the lean startup movement. And since then, he became obsessed with helping both uh, entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs make a positive impact. And take better strategic decisions. Um, It's really great to have you on the show, Brent.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Uh, So you've been around Silicon Valley uh, uh, and entrepreneurs and startups for quite a while, probably longer than most people. And uh, you've written also uh, some foundational books for the whole ecosystem. Um, uh, So I'd just like to uh, ask you how did you initially enter the startup world and what was your driver for joining this space? Like what, what inspired you to actually break into the startup ecosystem initially when you first, first uh, worked for startups?
1: Yeah. Uh, interesting question. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, after college, I, I, uh, I went and worked for small firms, but they were, you know, c- kind of consulting firms and, you know, typical structure and typical management and, and, you know, typical work days and those type of things. And it just didn't always sit that well with me. And uh, and so I, I was living in the Bay Area and Netscape was like maybe the biggest, the you know, the hottest thing going on. So the first browser and and to me, that was like, it kind of represented that first startup-y culture or vibe. Obviously there were startups before that, um, but they were, they were really hardware, you know, the Apple computer and, and Intel chips and everything seemed hardware based and somehow didn't appeal to me. Whereas Netscape was software. It was a browser. We could all touch and feel it. And in some ways, it's interesting because it was really that conversion from the internet being about big companies. And oh, wait a second. Here's now where the internet is going to emerge and do something for businesses, smaller businesses, for departments inside of big businesses and for consumers, for individuals. You can start to see where this technology is, is going to start benefiting uh, individuals. And maybe that was something that, uh, that appealed to me. Um, but there was a lot of buzz about it, obviously already, you know, in the late '90s in in, in the Bay Area, and so uh, I was an IT guy, basically working inside of these consulting firms, helping set up networks and you know doing desktop support and all of that, um, and uh, and there was just interesting technology, you know, I I, I was hooking up uh, Microsoft Mail systems to the internet via SMTP gateways when that stuff was like, Microsoft didn't even have an SMTP gateway. So I had to use this third party software. And so it's just, there was a lot of mentally challenging things to go on. You could not go get a degree in this stuff. You just kind of had to figure it out. And so it was, you know, it was fun. Um, and so playing around with that technology was the funner side of my job than whatever the, you know, consulting part was. And so, uh, so at some point I just, I, I looked for, for startup jobs and found one um, down in Redwood City. The downside of of that was I was living up in in Oakland, which I absolutely loved. And to get to Silicon Valley was quite a a trek. It was a long drive. And um, and so that was really kind of the trade-off, to be honest. I had a young family and so uh, that's a lot of commuting hours. But the job you're gonna spend, you know, eight plus hours at work, you know, that ought to be the fun part of it. But that's kind of how I got into it. It was just sort of this vibe thing. It, it was just it was really I didn't know this, but it was sort of that entrepreneurial mindset that was calling me. Um, I was nobody wanted to manage me in the traditional companies because I was tough to manage. I didn't want to do what other people wanted me to do. I wanted to do what I thought was best. And so that sort of mindset kind of belongs more in a startup environment than it does in, in traditional companies.
0: Absolutely, I think uh, entrepreneurs listening to this, and I think uh, there's quite a few early stage entrepreneurs listening to this that are maybe just at that stage right now, can definitely identify with that as a, like a very entrepreneurial gene uh, to to being unable to be ev- even work in a normal environment and uh, uh, only be focused on actually starting their own thing. Um, uh, I think the the reason why. Um, uh, I was so excited and looking forward to have you on the podcast, is because you, um, from the content you're putting out there and the, the writing you're putting out there, uh, it really seems like you put quite a massive focus on the need for impact-driven entrepreneurship, whether that's called impact-driven or not. But like for for entrepreneurs to solve like real problems um, and uh, not just look at a quick buck and IPO and uh, at these things. And on the other hand, obviously, if you look at Silicon Valley, there's this cliche term of changing the world, like everybody's changing the world and whatever they may be doing and whether that's like net positive or not, like everybody's talking about changing the world if you're in Silicon Valley. And obviously that kind of replicated all over the world, wherever you meet entrepreneurs, everybody's changing the world. So it's become this like term that everybody uses and at the same time, I think uh, I, I've been watching your uh, Brands Rant uh, video series, which I can highly recommend, um, uh, where you talk about obviously the reality of startups um, is often that a lot of, like, often the primary objective is really kind of pursuing the monetary returns, pursuing the IPO, and that being potentially driven as well by the VCs, by the investors, by the bankers pushing startups in the direction of that and maybe forgetting what actually the big problem that they need to solve is. So the question here is, um, what do you think needs to change in the uh, startup ecosystem for people to stop just talking about changing the world and actually tackling like some of the most pressing issues that are out there?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, to be honest, I don't think Like as a startup entrepreneur, people don't sit down and weigh what it is that they're, you know, should they start work on something big or work on something small? Somebody doesn't sit there and think, should I build a consumer iPhone app, invent a new jet propulsion system, or, you know, go cure poverty in a developing nation? I mean, it's just kind of not how people think. People are inspired by whether they kind of realize it or not, they're sort of inspired by needs that they see out in the world that they want solved. And so some of them are going to be, you know, rather trivial socially and other ones are going to be important. And so I, I think that that's fine. I actually don't think we can look at the entrepreneurs, the individuals sort of this micro viewpoint and say, you know, well, really you ought to go work on something more important. It's just not how innovation works. It's not how entrepreneurialism works. And before we got started, we were talking about government funding and how that influenced really the emergence that created the created Silicon Valley. And so if we take a step back and look at it from the most macro point of view, if we want to start doing things more impactful, we need the institutions to invest in more impactful projects. So, in other words, universities are doing really good things. Uh, in in the Lean Entrepreneur, there was the the case study on um, uh, the team at Stanford that that uh, ended up building the uh, the Embrace um, sort of that sleeping bag for uh infants and and would keep them warm uh they were uh preemie babies in a developing nation and so there's that came out of Stanford right so i think i think i mean part of the answer is so difficult it's a cultural thing it's a society thing where we have to say in bi- the biggest companies and the government and in universities that the research projects that are going on to do good should be spun out as startups in the same way that technology is. And yet we think of that as being different. We're going to go put them in this nonprofit world. We're going to go do social impact stuff over here with this group. And they should think about it more in terms of, no, we are investing in this because it is as valid as any startup is. And so, for example, uh, in the U.S. now weighing the green... New Deal, the Green Deal or whatever we're calling it, right? Which is the government going to invest into green technologies. That will produce, if it happens, hundreds, thousands of impact startups. Because the government isn't going to go do the work. The government is going to fund the work. And that's actually what gets stuff going. And so I think that at just at the very top, and a matter of fact, we were talking about uh, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, who's a professor at UCL, and she writes about this in her book. She writes about sort of this mission-oriented investments from government, and you know, sort of this top-down investment in missions that solve some of the biggest problems in the world. And so, I I really think it's got to start at the top, and then there's the layer of investors. And investors, we need to build an investment system that weighs wins that are singles and doubles and even that pay interest to investors and that the whole innovation community is not funded with the idea that you need 10X returns, right? So there's this whole investment layer there. Like, I think it's absolutely insane that, you know, interest rates are so low right now, which is a good thing, but. Nobody can earn any interest, right? So that what your, your gains are is, you know, you're buying treasuries that have, you know, like a super low interest rate, and then you've got stock market equity gains, and there's almost nothing in between. And there's this whole range of uh, returns of, you know, from 5% to 15% or something that you could actually get returns on your investment that is not the 5X, 10X, 100X of startups, but is way more than these treasuries and all of these impact projects maybe would fit inside of that huge range of returns that you're getting for smaller wins for companies that are producing impact, but also doing it in a, in a for-profit sense, or a, or paying dividends or something. I mean, I think that there's, there's more that we need to figure out there so that people can run for-profit businesses, um, that are also having uh, impact on the world so there's a whole investment class there and a matter of fact really foundations maybe should be investing in uh, in 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 nonprofits or B corps that don't re- make a return but they're returning based upon their impact and instead the foundations tend to spend their money as if, you know, by the end of the budget year, I just have to spend my money and they're allocating these funds to whatever nonprofits they can. And yet there's not this built-in concept of, you know, seed rounds and A rounds and B rounds and, and this concept of like, no, you have to drive impact and you have to show me the impact for you to get more money from me. And so if all of these foundations or did this themselves or they went through this different type of investment class that was treating the impact, the B Corps and the and the nonprofits as being entities that have to show impact to get more value. Well, then again, we're going to start seeing that behavior. And so uh, down to the lowest level, back down to the entrepreneurs, um, I think that they have to choose what the right corporate entity is. And then they have to say up front, this is what my mission is. So if you invest in me, you're investing in my mission. You know, if I don't accomplish my mission, you're investing in an empty shell. That doesn't make any sense. You're investing in my mission, not in the business. And, um, and so I do think that there's layers for everybody to make small changes, but I also do think it's like we have to look at it from these macro perspectives as well as from, you know, sort of down at the entrepreneurial level. Um, I think in the end. So in the whole. In the whole traditional startup world, I talk a lot about the myth of the visionary. Oh, I'm solving such a big problem that you know if I'm just gonna go build the product and everybody's gonna come to my door. A lot of the social impact uh, entrepreneurs have the same problem. It's similar, not exactly the same, but they're like, it's sort of like the myth of the do-gooder. And the myth of the do-gooder is, I am solving such an important problem and I'm helping these people so much everybody's going to give me money because they they also agree that I should be helping them. And then they sit around and they wait for the money. And it just doesn't work that way. They have to work like an entrepreneur, like any other entrepreneur. They need to be able to show impact. They need to be able to provide evidence that they're actually accomplishing their mission and they need to ask for the funding in a way that's not just like, give me a grant and go away. It should be investment style funding. Long answer, but it's a complicated ecosystem, so.
0: Perfect. Cool. Um, so uh, you just spoke about earlier as well, obviously about the difficulty of social entrepreneurs solving like these um, environmental and social issues being put into this box of charities or not, not quite like, or is this something that you can even make money with, right? And on the other hand, obviously... Uh, that they also should have the ambition to measure themselves against the same standards as any other entrepreneur as well. Um, what would your advice be for entrepreneurs that are starting out and that uh, are very clear on solving a social or environmental challenge um, to not be put into that box? What's like the key advice for them uh, to make sure that uh, they can be successful also in raising funding and uh, establishing themselves as? as a, a successful startup.
1: Yeah, they be, they have to not put themselves in the box. I think that happens, you know, they they kind of want to be viewed as a special class. And and again, if you want to be viewed as a special class, then go be a B Corp or a, or a or a nonprofit. If you if you're if you're a for-profit social impact company, then state that loud and proud. And uh and And I think that what people need to be better at is describing their mission. And so that whenever somebody, if you're asking for investment or you're talking about startup investment, you don't say you're investing in the business or investing in me, the founder, You're investing in the mission. And frankly, I I, I actually just wrote this for my next book. I wrote this yesterday because it's the same thing for large enterprises, to be sure. So I don't know if you've been tracking this all, but... Um, You know, there's been this movement now just in the last couple of years around big corporations saying like, OK, yes, we're not only responsible for driving value to shareholders. It's also for, you know, employees and customers as well. And this was really referring back to Milton Friedman wrote this uh, this political screed in The New York Times back in 1970. And it really started this change where U.S. corporations in particular – We're focused on maximizing value for shareholders. And I was just kind of going through this logical argument with myself yesterday going like, well, how do you invest in a business that's maximizing shareholder shareholder value? The business has a mission. You know, I'm building widgets and I'm selling these widgets to a customer. I mean, that's what you're investing in. If you were investing only in an entity that was supposed to be maximizing value to you, the investor, everybody would become a bank or a casino. You would actually be telling the company that they have to change their business in order to do whatever that is, you know, to drive more money to them. It doesn't make any sense. And nobody would ever argue that what you're actually investing in is the mission of that business. I my business is in place to build this sort of product, a car for these type of people, right? I mean, that's the mission invest in me or don't well. So impact entrepreneurs are the same, are the same thing. My mission is this, I want to scale this. I'm going to grow. I'm for profit, but the profit is I earned the profit based upon accomplishing my mission. So what you're investing in is the mission. And I think that if, if founders are able to tell that story, if the investor does not want to invest in the mission, good. That's like a market segment that's, you know, you don't want to spend any time on, right? But if they want to invest in the mission, then they know consciously that that's the contract.
0: Got it. Do you think that general good advice for entrepreneurs um, to to focus yes. on the mission first, right? It's not just impact yes. impact entrepreneurs or like uh, good advice for a small segment. It's it's related to like some of the stuff like uh, Start With Why, Simon Cynics, a uh, uh, book, uh, things like that, right? Like people are not really inspired by companies that say, oh, we're just like, you know, we're just doing this thing and... Uh, And I'm not inspired to work for a company that says, like, oh, we're just here to maximize shareholder value. And I've been in that position in the beginning of my career where I've worked for a company like that. But you really ask yourself, like, yeah, every company wants to make money. Like, but why are you actually here? Like, yeah. So uh, Amazing.
1: Well, and, and even that business, yeah, even that business you're talking about actually had a mission that was more than maximizing shareholder value, or they would just be writing checks to shareholders, which, of course, they do sometimes here in the U.S. when they get, you know, tax breaks, then they're sending dividends and stock buybacks and all the rest. But to your point, I mean, I think that that's I think it's all entrepreneurs need to be able to state that mission. And I think what's interesting about it, it's really the premise of my next book is that if you get people to shift to that so that they're focused on the mission, there's a lot of other good things in society that automatically happens. So if I if I say my mission is to provide this value to customers, then there's a, a certain I need to keep my customers safe, right? I can't I can't kill them or else I don't have any customers. So I can't like Put bad things in my product that actually hurts my customer. That's not providing value to them. Um, and, and if I don't treat my employees well, there's no way I also can serve my mission. Well, so, okay. Now we got to talk about treating our employees better. I mean, there ends up being sort of the snowball effect in the right direction. If we focus on providing value to customers versus, you know, this myth around the shareholders and guess what? If you succeed in providing value for customers, you get to create value for the shareholders as well. I mean, that's the logical flow. and uh, and so I, I just I just think that if we could make this switch back to the 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 share, the customer value, there's a lot of these other societal impact things that happen uh, naturally. And that to be honest, also hopefully, frees up the environment for those that are are committed to impact to uh you know to play along you know right alongside you know if i'm building a widget or i'm uh you know providing childcare for the that same person those things actually maybe go hand in hand instead of thought about as being completely different things
0: got it amazing um would you say there is a certain set of mistakes that you observe uh, impact-driven entrepreneurs make? Uh, So are they making different types of mistakes than like the average entrepreneur, mainstream entrepreneur, or whatever we want to call it? Um, Is there specific advice you can share with them, or are they much like the the same?
1: I think they're very similar. I think that... the, the words are different. And so I think that, that maybe there's word translation that, that, uh, that goes on. Um, so for example, uh, you know, what, what do you call, you don't have customers, you have stakeholders or constituents or beneficiaries. I mean, there's some word there for who you're helping, uh, where the word customer might not be the best word. Um, but you still need to segment them in a similar way, right? I mean, you're still gonna have early adopters of whatever this constituency is that you're helping. There are people that are gonna be more receptive early on, right, so it's gonna follow that same life cycle adoption curve that we use in the regular startup world. So all I think all of the patterns are the same. It's the words that are different. And so social impact entrepreneurs have to think about the words that and then and then translate all of the teaching um, with those words in mind. Um, and so often stakeholders is one that uh, impact entrepreneurs use instead of customers. And so think about like, well, what's the pattern of your stakeholders who will be your early adopters? There's something about them where they get what you're trying to do. Maybe they thought of doing it themselves. They've been looking for ways to do this. And so then there's you know a great partnership there because they're already they already grok it you don't have to convince them you know there aren't other hurdles that you have to go over in order to convince what would be the early majority or the late majority or the last people that will ever you know sign up for whatever it is that you're doing um so i guess i would encourage generally i think social impact entrepreneurs can go read all of the same books They just need to figure out how to translate some of the words to make it meaningful for what they're doing. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And obviously, social impact entrepreneurs is quite a wide phrase as well. It could describe somebody starting a big charity or a foundation, could describe somebody that... Um, uh uh starts a VC backed uh company that just happens to solve a certain uh environmental or social issue, education company. Uh we've had a founder of a renewable energy company here, uh, inherently profitable business, uh, but happens to actually um uh, make sure that our energy is clean, right? So um there's there's such a broad range, right? Um and I think from my own experience, I've worked with charities before in my life, and I've worked with um, like profit-driven entrepreneurs that happen to solve social and environmental issues. And the question to you is, do you see that charities and maybe governments as well uh, are, need to play catch up uh, with like, some of the lessons that maybe the world of entrepreneurship has learned uh, throughout the years? Or don't you, do you not see it as black and white as that?
1: Oh no, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for moves the needle for a couple of years, we had a, uh, a social impact arm of what we did. So teaching people all of these lean innovation techniques, um, and the, the two women that were with us are off doing it on their, on their own now, Heather Hescox and, and Amelia Cloan. And I don't know what the name of their business is, but there are people that are focused on teaching these lean, lean innovation t- techniques to, uh, charities into foundations, it never really caught on to the level that we were hoping it would. And, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a money problem. Um, because the foundations are giving monies to these charities, uh, because they want that money spent on, uh, obviously on the services. And, um, and so it's really to me, again, the foundations that should be leading the effort in terms of demanding impact on their, on their giving and the moment they want impact, then it sort of drives home the need to improve. Um, you know, the operations and the efficiency of the, of the charity in order to deliver, deliver higher impact per dollar, um, given. So I think the foundations are the ones that have to drive that. But unfortunately, the foundations themselves are often, they kind of don't care. Um, if you're giving away billions of dollars and, you know, every year you have to give away so much of that and nobody's asking for the results, then that money is just, it's just, it's kind of a scam to be honest. I hate to use the word, but I mean, the money just flows and there's nobody saying, you know, well, what are we actually getting out of this? And it's, it's just, it's bogus. And, and the people that are, you know, they're all good minded people. They're all good hearted people, but, uh, but it's so inefficient in that way and people and foundations and people that are giving money to the foundations need to demand, um, they need to demand, uh, uh, the impact reports and they need to demand a higher impact for their dollar spent. And maybe that starts creating the, the, the culture of improving, you know, the practices.
0: Got it. Um, One topic I've become uh, increasingly passionate about is obviously I love to spend time with entrepreneurs and it's really energizing to see people that solve important problems to be solved. And uh, really that energy of transformation and that magic of entrepreneurship, I think it's really energizing to see. But I think at the same time, I think it's really the time has come for the broader economy to transform as well and build social and environmental impact into their business models and for big corporates for any size of organization to embrace this not as a CSR initiative where it's like we're making money however we are making money and we're donating a little bit on the side more like how can we fundamentally do good by doing business and kind of make sure that we have a, like a net positive impact so uh, i'd love to learn from you a little bit because i think the Obviously, there's been this whole term of digital transformation. I'm sure uh, the work you do with Moves the Needle is kind of plugging into that, a lot of that work within corporates where they, in some ways, obviously trying to catch up with uh, how the world has changed and uh, the new digital ways of working and digital products, etc. Um, and I believe that we're about to see like more of a massive impact transformation in the sense that like large corporates will want to fundamentally shift their business models to make sure that they have a net positive impact. And I think you see like uh, corporates like Unilever, for example, that are really trying to do that and um, have developed some amazing technology to be able to track their impact and improve uh, the impact that they have. Um, My question to you is, after this long-winded introduction of the topic, uh, my question to you is, um, you've been part of change initiatives and transformation or entrepreneurial bringing entrepreneurial spirit into corporates for quite a while um do you think the same methodology could be used to also make sure that big corporates um uh shift and um become net net positive um impact companies and make sure that they actually have a positive contribution uh to society
1: i yeah i it... I don't know. I mean, I guess I I'm betting on a lot that we can do this. Uh, it, it really is, you know, partly about what my next book is about as well. I I think that um, even just getting companies to focus on customer value first is the first hurdle, especially here in the U.S. I mean, I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of Europe where companies are buying into you know the U.N.'s sustainability um, programs, and so I think. I think there's companies in europe that are already doing this and thinking about it us i think in a lot of ways uh is behind in that regard um i think that i agree with this whole you know we're, it, digital transformation to a lot of companies means we need to build a mobile app and so part of what i'm trying to do with my book is convince people that no that's not you know that's part of it that's digital transformation but what's really going on here is a digital revolution and that the whole society is being changed you know everybody's walking around with a computer in their pocket and it just means that we all have so much more information and and really there's a lot of consumer power out there with social media and review sites and all of these type of things and uh and so i think that if even if you look at it from a i don't know from a selfish point of view the large corporations many of them are thinking if my customers demand that we're more positive impactful then we have to be more positively impactful in order to keep our customer so it becomes a point of competition and so i think that's already happening now it also shows why all of this corporate consolidation that's been going on for the last 50 years is bad because the more oligopoly or monopoly you have in a market the less need there is for these companies to change cuz the customers don't have the choice so as long as we have choices as consumers there's pressure on the companies to actually do the right thing so i think that so i think that's that's changing whether people want it to or not but i do think that individuals actually have more power than they think both as shareholders and as consumers So can we get Amazon to change their behavior better by stop buying Amazon? No, but, um, but, you know, sort of as a class of people, if we're choosing brands that more align with our values, um, that will affect corporations. Um, and we've seen it happen with, uh, with black lives matter. And we've seen it happen with, uh, um, you know, the, the, the gay, uh, community and, um, you know, we've seen these, these things happen where corporations change their behavior because of the response of human beings. And so I think that individuals need to, as much as possible, consume based upon their values. And if you invest, there are all sorts of shareholder organizations that you can belong to that put pressure on. I've talked to these people that are on boards and they hear. That there are labor organizations and shareholder groups that are saying we need to treat employees better and and there's whole movements around this stuff. And so people can participate in that if you're an investor and the corporations do respond to that. I think ultimately, I don't think businesses are going to choose to uh, take on a social mission that doesn't have a direct impact on their company. So, you know, uh, if if the customers and the shareholders don't care, I don't think the business is going to care. There are going to be exceptions, um, but I also think that this is the partly the role of the government. It goes all the way back to our first question and investing from the government into you know green new deal and into impact and changing the world in a positive way. I think the the governments are gonna lead that way. And so then what we have to do is build this firewall between corporations and the government. So it doesn't make sense here in the US for companies to say, hey, we're not gonna do any of that social stuff. That belongs to the government. And that's actually Milton Friedman says that specifically, those social issues belong to the government. Okay, so that's fine, but it doesn't make any sense for the corporation to say, Okay, that belongs to the government. And oh, by the way, as a corporation, we're going to fund a bunch of politicians that don't let the government do it or that we're going to lobby the government to not do those social issues. That is taking a stand on those social issues. And so there's this hypocrisy that we need to end. And it's really bad here in the U.S., where they're declaring that they're not going to do the social stuff, but yet they engage in politics in a way that they are influencing the social stuff, and so we need to build this firewall between the corporations and the government. And so the corporations kind of run around and say, "Okay, we're not going to re- we're not going to weigh in on those social issues." Fine, then then get out of the politics because that's how the people decide what are the social issues that they want to resolve.
0: Got it. I got one last question for you, and uh, that's inspired, actually. Also, uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Your brand's rants Uh, uh looking <laughs> forward to the next episodes. Um, I think at the end of the video, uh, you talk about the vision of making capitalism work for a better world, which obviously I can identify uh, with a-, a lot. And my last question always on this show is how does the world look like in 10 years if you succeed and in your context what I'd like to know how does the world look like in 10 years if your message gets shared so widely that that uh, capitalism will work for a better world how does that vision look like
1: so i think that we what we see is is a a reemergence of the of a strong middle class and uh and so i think that um you know, what we're seeing here in in the U.S. is just really this crazy gap opening up between the people that have and and sort of everybody else. And so we should see a reverse of that. Um, uh, We should see uh, really more. If it happened globally, we would see more peace in the world. We'd see less turmoil. A lot of the turmoil that's going on now is this leaving the old economy behind. And so that you know as as a society we don't necessarily do a real great job of helping people transition from the old world to the new world and so i think that we need to be better at that and so i think that we would see some evidence of that i think you would see a lot of uh a lot of impact um businesses being um thriving i think you would see a lot of uh environmental uh, companies, uh, green companies, and hopefully you would even see, uh, I don't know, 10 years time. It'd be nice to see that there was, you know, some, uh, you know, some indication from our climate scientists that we had made it, uh, an impact on, uh, you know, on, on the climate change. Um, but so you should see it socially, you should see it, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, black peoples and and Latino and Latina uh, people um, participating in an Asian too. I mean, really just all uh, minorities, a greater participation in the economy, the reduction of systemic racism. Uh, I mean, you should just see it all the way flow through. If stuff is happening correctly, um, I, you know, I think it's uh, the foundation is this, that they, you know, I write about this in my book I sorry, I keep alluding to the book, but it you know, people, people are asking like out. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wh- why can't we all just get along? You know, like we need this pipe bipartisan approach to everything. And I actually don't think that's true. System stability happens when there's opposing forces and they come to an equilibrium. And so in a lot of ways, consumers, workers, and business owners are opposing forces. And what we want is the power of those opposing forces to shape an economic system that is what society wants, right? And so society operates through government to determine what they want a stable system to look like. And so what it looks like in terms of employment, what it looks like in terms of environmental policy, what it looks like in terms of uh, uh, diversity, you know, Society gets to choose those things and operates through the government. The government then needs to balance those power, the consumer, the company owner, and the worker, so that they're opposing in such a way that there's a stable system that reflects what society wants. And so that's really where we need to get to, and we could do it in 10 years. It's actually not that difficult. Uh, one of the benefits of digital transformation is the amount of data that we have. We can actually figure this stuff out. Um, and uh, a lot of great writing coming out, uh, Stephanie Kilton and um, and and like I mentioned before, Mariana Mazzucato and these people that have looked at the data and um, and have looked at different ways to analyze the complex system that is our society and the complex system that is our economy. And we know things better today than we knew 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so it's really just a mindset change that we need among sort of that decision-making class, both in economy, politics, education, and business. And I think change happens quickly once we get over that tipping point.
0: Great. Uh, it's great to see how you've been part of that mindset change as well uh, over the years and uh, have a clear vision on how to continue that. It's It's been a real pleasure to have you on Impact Hustlers, and uh, thanks for making the time and joining us.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's a, you know, fun discussion. It's fun fun talking to you about it.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for joining.
1: All right, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impact hustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.